you know, Indiana basketball is known for having some pretty quirky coaches. Of course, the first one that comes to most of your minds is Bobby Knight, uh, known for his infamous uh, chair toss out onto the floor after a technical foul during a game against Purdue. I research these things. I don't know these things off the top of my head, just to tell you that. Though some of you will know every person that I talk about here. Uh, Bobby Knight was also known for his intense, co- intense coaching style for among his players um, in private as well. In one instance, he brought a live snake into the locker room. And this was to teach his players about the importance of staying focused under pressure. He also, uh, in another instance, had his players dive into a freezing cold lake for the purpose of building mental toughness. Some of you might know uh, Frank Vogel, the former head coach of the Indiana Pacers. Uh, He gave a memorable halftime speech that that it kind of got leaked out to the fans and kind of became a a funny emblem of his coaching career in which he he tried to motivate the, the Pacer players by telling them that they were unicorns. He was trying to explain how they then highlight their, their unique talents that they brought to the game, but somehow this, that idea of calling a bunch of basketball players unicorns uh, just uh, didn't die out. Maybe you know about Boom Baby, Bobby Slick Leonard, a colorful figure in Indiana basketball history known for his enthusiastic, eccentric coaching style. One of his uh, famous catchphrases was, Boom Baby which he would shout every time a Pacer player hit a three-point shot. So Indiana's seen some quirky coaches, um, but that coach teams effectively. Today we see the function, uh, Jesus function more than just a quirky coach. He's a mission commander. He goes from from, uh, having many disciples... Which, which he still had, uh, the disciples, the, the, what we know is the 12, his 12 disciples. As Josh covered last week, at some point, Jesus named among, from among his many disciples, his many followers, he narrowed down to 12 and declared and called them to be apostles. We saw this, or you saw this, I listened to it, it's the excellent sermon that, that Josh gave uh, last Sunday, uh, from the beginning of Matthew 10, where we read in verse 1, and he, talking about Jesus, called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. Now, did you notice there the transition from understanding these men as disciples to apostles? As Josh mentioned, this this is because they were being sent out, but this is also because these are apostles with a capital A. These are the apostles. And an aspect that I want you to see that Josh drew attention to as well is they were a part of their being the 12 apostles was being given Jesus' authority 
over unclean spirits to heal every disease and every affliction as well. And so we are looking especially in this chapter of chapter 10, which, which covers Jesus' mission briefings. And I'll explain this a little bit more next week of how Matthew, as he writes his gospel, one of the, the differences in the way that he writes is he's grouping in this section several different mission briefings that Jesus has given and to his apostles. They're not necessarily one right after another as we would typically read them. But here today we look at his mission briefing for them in a for a Galilean campaign to the Jewish people around the Sea of Galilee. And we'll look next week at a different mission briefing that's also grouped here in chapter 10. But today we learn about Jesus' specific instructions to the 12 apostles as he sent them out on evangelistic campaign around the region of Galilee. And having established the 12 as we know them as, as different points in the Gospels, and establishing them as his apostles, Jesus gives their mission orders for one of their campaigns. And these instructions were considered to be crucial for how they were to represent Jesus, King Jesus, who was sending them out. He as their mission commander, and they were to follow them. So we pick up in verse 5. Where we read, these twelve Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. So this region of Galilee is that of surrounding the Sea of Galilee, and, and part of the Sea of Galilee had Gentile areas, especially to the east of the Sea of Galilee. You might recall that Jesus crossed over the Sea of Galilee at one point and healed some men who were plagued by demons who were a Gentile in a Gentile region there. Um, but also this Gentile, this uh, Galilean area was north of Jerusalem, north of the Judean area, and between the area of Galilee and the area of Judea where Jerusalem was, you had Samaria, where the Samaritans lived. And here we see Jesus' instructions for this specific campaign to the Jewish people of the area. And this followed God's sovereign plan that he foretold of and carried out in the New Testament, that the gospel was intended to go to the Jews first, to the Jewish people first. And after, as a nation, they had rejected the gospel, it would extend to us Gentiles. So Jesus is following this plan, and he calls the Jewish people the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is a term he's using here for all of the Jews, it isn't just a subset of the nation of Israel. Just go to those lost sheep part of Israel. It's a term for God's people that he used also in the Old Testament when they had walked away from him as their shepherd. And this was the condition that Jesus was highlighting as well. And so we move on here in verse 8. You received without paying 
give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. No bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff. For the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust of your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Wow, what an amazing statement. A haunting statement, really. So while we are not apostles, we can learn from seeing Jesus exercise his authority. And from this, I want to challenge you here this morning to yield to Jesus' right to outline your objectives. You know, a military campaign, a a military mission, as well as other aspects of life, but specifically we think of a military mission, one of the things that are outlined is what is the objective here? What is the goal for this mission? And I want to challenge you here to yield to Jesus' right as our mission commander for our lives, the, the mission that we are on in our lives to outline your objectives, your goals for your life, if you know Christ as your Savior. You'll notice that, that uh, the apostles' message was the same as Jesus' message in Galilee. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why was that? Because the king was on site. The king had come into his realm. The gospel on this side of the cross that we should make our life about is more than just that the kingdom, that the king has come, but it's also that the king came. The king physically walked this earth and the king sacrificed himself. He took our place. He substituted himself for us, paying the penalty of death that our sins deserve, that we deserve because of the fact that we are all sinners. He died, he rose again to be our King, Savior, and Lord. You can also see that their verifying signs were the same as Jesus's. They were to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. As an official apostle or sent ones of King Jesus, they had been given a a portion of Jesus' authority to be carried out. Verse 1, we saw that they were uh, given authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. And they were then given permission, go and use this authority that I give you to promote my kingdom. And God had promised that his kingdom would one day fully come to the earth with his perfect King Jesus on the throne. And when it did, he would drive away sickness and darkness and, and death. And these apostles performing these signs that Jesus had performed, 
were authenticating his message. This is why he gave them this authority to do so, to authenticate the message. So the 12 apostles were instructed by the one that they were to represent. They were given strict instructions on how to deliver that message, and they were to avoid Gentile and Samaritan towns, but to go to the towns of the Jews around the Sea of Galilee. And their message was to be the same as King Jesus's. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they were given authenticating signs. They were the same ones that he had done. So we should be allowing King Jesus to define where we go and what we share with others, just as he did for his apostles. We should let King Jesus define these same things for us. Does Jesus also have the right to tell us how to represent him today? Well, is he still king? Yes, he is. You know, I learned recently a little bit about what it it looks like for a person to sign up for the military. And once that contract is signed... They start, they're started giving, uh, getting orders. And the first order is show up for basic training. And if they don't show up, it's not like, well, I guess he, he uh, decided not to. No, if they don't show up, have they, after they've signed that contract, they're AWOL. They are absent without leave, without permission. And the authorities will be showing up at their door. Understand something. It has only been within the last century that there has been a concept in Western Christianity that someone can receive Jesus as their Savior and then not show up and not answer the call to follow him with their lives. And, and this sort of idea, this sort of belief, I believe has led many people to think they have a relationship with Jesus as their Savior and yet deny that he is the Lord of their life. And they're actually wrong. That has only been within the last, the last century that, that the Western church has believed that idea that I can receive Jesus as my Savior, but I can deny that he's my Lord. He is still mission commander. What would be worse than a soldier going AWOL is a soldier soldier going rogue. This would be a soldier acting on their own without orders. And both of these instances are examples of someone ignoring the direction of the authority over them. As Christians, we have a direct relationship with our king commander. Today, people worship the idol of autonomy in our culture. Autonomy meaning, I am my own law. I am my own rule giver. I direct my own life. And we have to be very careful that we don't let that idol into our Christian thinking. Not let that idol into our churches of thinking, what do we worship here? We worship our will. We worship 
uh, life as however we want it to be. That's like setting up an idol of the culture in our sanctuary. We worship Christ. We worship him as Savior and Lord, King. We don't have the right to define or justify our message. We don't have the luxury of defining our relationship with Jesus as our King. And there has never been a time when, but prior to this past century where Christians were not expected to yield to Jesus as their Lord. Not necessarily as a decision, but as an effect of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Meaning, this is what God does to your life. He takes it over. Maybe over time. Maybe over a long journey. But God, when we know him as our Savior, he takes it over. Our lives over, bit by bit. And we find joy in living it for him. We'll see the importance of Jesus' mission briefing. Uh, in the coming weeks. And that's just like a soldier is given the gravity of the situation that they are stepping into. Jesus will tell his apostles that their mission is a matter of eternal life and death. We'll read in Matthew 10, verses 32 through 33, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I, will, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men... I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. We're going to see a lot of like wow statements in this chapter 10. And it's going to be neat to walk through those together. We'll see from these statements just how vital it is that we recognize and acknowledge Jesus' lordship of our lives. Next to be covered in this uh, mission briefing is how the apostles' needs will be covered during this campaign. And from these verses, I want to challenge you to yield to Jesus' right to plan for your provision. Yield to Jesus' right to plan for your provision. He says, you received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. No bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff for the laborer deserves his food. You know, when he talks about re you received without paying, give without pay. Traveling prophets of that day were notorious for, for charging a fee for a group of people to, quote, hear the word, hear a word from God or, or quote, receive a blessing from God. Sadly, uh, many of us have seen or heard of this sort of thing today as well. Well, if you want God's blessing, you've got to pay out. This, this is not a new thing. The, t the, the twelve, and us as well, are to be different than these because our relationship with God isn't something we've earned. It was something given to us as a gift. And if people couldn't pay for it, uh, how, how awful would it have been for these apostles to refuse to share the truth with them that the king has come? They were to be different than that. Jesus tells the twelve to go without being able to, to provide for themselves as well. I think the apostles were expected to basically get up and head out. It's like, all right, here's your first mission. 
this is what you're to do. Go do it. And they would have been like, uh, shouldn't I go back and get another tunic? Um, maybe I should go on a fundraising campaign beforehand. Uh, I, you know, I got a rich uncle. I could ask him for, for some money to cover my needs on this. I picture Jesus gathering the twelve and, and after establishing them as his apostles, he says it's go time, right? The, the extra tunic would have been for sleeping under the stars and keeping them warm. So it's like, well, it's like gra- going and grabbing a sleeping bag. Well, in case there's no way f- where for me to sleep at night, I'm going to need uh, a plan B. Jesus is telling them, you will be taken care of. Just go. Recall those who, who said that they wanted to follow Jesus, but they had things they needed to do first. Right? And Jesus exercised his right to be a big deal and to expect total surrender. And here Jesus is exercising his right to tell his representatives how they're going to roll and, and to trust him for their provision. These were Jesus' special apostles going out on a special campaign with special instructions. But we can recognize from our passage that we also should yield to Jesus' right as our king to plan for our provision. We should be allowing King Jesus to define the level of earthly provision that we need to glorify him as he did for his apostles. You know, some of us would like to say, you know, Lord, it'd be a lot easier to follow you if I didn't have this medical issue. It'd be a lot easier to follow you if, uh, if it meant earning a little bit more money. Maybe after I finally make one of those big deals, Lord. I, you know, maybe, maybe after I, I finally... Uh, Get that promotion. There was a time in England when church parishioners paid for their pews. And uh, the more you paid for your pew, the closer, the further up in the, you know, the more likely you were to get spit on, I guess. You got closer to the pulpit. And, And this payment for their pews went to support the pastor. In the 1800s, Pastor George Mueller ended this practice in his church, and it was a movement among many of the pastors of England. And they simply placed a box in the back. And they said, give as you feel led. He went on to care for over 10,000 orphans during his lifetime, established 117 schools, which offered Christian education to more than 120,000 people. George Mueller set out to do all of these things without knowing where the funding was going to come from. He simply knew that what God wanted him to do. And he stepped out in faith and God supplied. Yield to Jesus' right to plan for your provision. Your job is to just obey his calling on your life. I'm going to meddle a little bit here. This may look like giving away so much that it lowers your standard of living. 
Maybe that's not the standard of living that King Jesus has in mind for you. I can tell you that if you're giving more to Comcast or to your, compa- your car payments than you are to the Lord's work, you've got your priorities mixed up. I care enough about you to tell you that. It may look like serving the Lord so much that you miss your favorite TV show every now and then. I would bet it doesn't even, it, it takes a backstage, takes a step back in its level of importance to you because you get so much joy out of serving the Lord and out of being with his people. If, if you find yourself to be surprised by the joy that you get from serving the Lord, it means that you might even be not sure what's going to come of it before you commit to it. Be surprised by joy. Be surprised by, I didn't know that I was going to enjoy being used by the Lord like this. But I did it anyways. Because I knew that that's what he wanted me to do. Yield to Jesus' right to plan for your provision. His right to define how you spend your money, how you spend your time. This takes us to how the apostles were, were to be provided for and these are by, by those who received their message. We read in verses 11 through 15 or 14. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you, Or listen to your words. Shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. So the Jews had this practice. Sorry, I'm chewing on a cough drop here, right into the microphone. The Jews had this practice of actually shaking off the dust of their feet when leaving a Gentile area. It's like saying, I don't want to take any of this defiled place with me. Some of us husbands have experienced this when we come home from a really dirty project, right? And the wife is like, stop right there. Don't come any further. Just strip down. And I'm throwing that stuff in the wash. The apostles' relationship with fellow Jews were to be defined were to be refined by how those Jews responded to Jesus. Are you catching this? Like, rather than it being like, hey, you're my Jewish brother. You're my Jewish, you know, we are, we are of the same people. Now all of a sudden, how that person responded to Jesus, not that they were to be looking down on them, but it was to define their relationship with that person. It's like, I, I got to be with people that recognize King Jesus. Those are the ones that I fellowship with. Now, not that they were to ostracize those other people, not that they were to not spend time with those other people because they needed to proclaim Jesus' message, but who they were to fellowship with came down to how does this person receive the kingship of Jesus or not? So from these verses, I want to 
you to see how you should yield to Jesus' right to refine your relationships. We see for, for the apostles on mission, they were to stay in homes of people that were receptive to their mission. Their, their mission to, to explain that, that the king had arrived. And this is what it, uh, is meant by the home being worthy or not. They're, the, the home, the people in that home, their receptivity to the message that the King Jesus had come. And, and uh, when they, it says, uh, give it your peace or let your peace return, the Jewish New Testament commentary explains this about the term peace or shalom. It says the word shalom means not only peace as we think of it, but also tranquility, safety, well-being, welfare, health, contentment, success, comfort, wholeness, and integrity. The, the term uh, shalom alechem means peace be upon you. It's a common greeting uh, going along with simply you might hear a Jewish person saying shalom. They might even go on to say, Shalom alchem, peace be upon you. This, this deeper meaning of Jesus' instructions to give it their peace in verse 13, the Jewish New Testament commentary continues, uh, to give that peace or to withhold that shalom refers not only to the greeting but also to the, to the complex of, of peace, wholeness, well-being that the Messiah offers. With that authority, in other words, at this point in the, in the gospel's development, the development of the gospel message, with that authority that Jesus gave them as that home, as that household was receptive to their message, they had the authority to give the well-being that Jesus offers or that authority was such that if that household was not receptive to the message to take that back it goes a long lot further than you know during the the 60s and 70s of somebody holding up two fingers saying peace man right they were actually had the authority uh, of giving what in that point in gospel development would have been Salvation, if you will, or to take it back, to not allow it. But, but understand that it all came down to where does that person stand with Jesus and who he truly is? Are they receptive to the idea that the king has come and the king's name is Jesus? Jesus' peace, well-being, wholeness is only available to those who acknowledge who he is. In the same way, we should be allowing King Jesus to define our ultimate hope for our relationships. Seeing others trust Christ as Savior. As he did for his apostles. To define those relationships. You know, to define when, when a, a Jewish brother's like, uh, why are you shaking the dust off your feet? I'm not a Gentile. The apostles are basically saying it's not about whether or not we're Jews or anymore. It's about whether or not you are receptive to King Jesus. 
And that should define our greatest hope in our relationships as well. What I mean by this is that our ultimate desire should reflect Jesus' offering of entry into his kingdom regarding the unsaved that we interact with, that our number one goal should be that God brings them alive in Christ. As Colossians 4, 5, and 6 tells us, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. That using the best use of the time is to know how to answer each person in a way that will glorify God and that will possibly give them the opportunity to know Jesus as their Savior. You know, Jesus illustrates this in his life when people interrupted him as he was teaching with news of his mother's and bro- his mother and brothers being outside. And we read in Luke 18, verse 21, he answered them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. This is what it means for us to consider ourselves a church family. For us to consider one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Many of you uh, experience the grieving uh, of your physical brothers and sisters. Not knowing Christ as their Savior as, as I do as well. And for that creating such a distance in my relationship with them. But, but that's in some ways as it should be. That, that, that's as it should be, we're told here. That because if that person does not acknowledge Jesus as their Savior, it changes the relationship. And, and on the other hand, to experience that, that you and I aren't from the same mother. We're not from the same region of the United States originally. But we can have a deeper connection with one another because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And that should be the deepest desire that we have for those family members that don't know him. Lee Eklov in his book, um, Feels Like Home, I've shared this with you before. He talks about how in New Testament times, to call someone your brother or sister who wasn't your blood brother or sister was completely revolutionary. And that's because in New Testament times, the relationship with a brother or a sister, a sibling, was closer than a relationship with the spouse. And so for the early church to express that they were brothers and sisters to one another in Christ was like, what are you talking about? You, you, you mean you just became closer to that person than anybody else in your life? Yeah, that's the point of it. That's what happens. This is why we're called to foster genuinely special relationships with one another, to love one another, to be devoted to one another, to honor one another above ourselves, to live in harmony with one another, to build up one another, to accept one another, to admonish one another, to care for one another, to bear one another's burdens, to forgive one another, to be patient with one another to submit to one another, to consider one another as better than ourselves, to teach one another, to exhort one another. All these flow out of the fact that our relationship with Jesus redefines our relationships with one another. 
Our verse closes with a curious statement that honestly should haunt us. He says, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Meaning the town that the apostles come to and declare the kingdom of God is come. The king is, is among us. The king's name is Jesus. And that town says, forget it. What are you talking about? You're telling us to, to stop looking for the Messiah? You're telling us to get on board with what you've found? And the apostles walk away and they're, and they're kicking the dust off their feet. It's not an insult. It's not like we're better than you. It's saying, you know what? You're like a Gentile to me. Because those that receive Jesus as their king, they're my brothers and sisters. For that town that rejected Jesus, he says it's going to be more bearable on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Why is that? Sodom and Gomorrah, you, you'd know the, them as the evil cities that came under God's judgment of fire and brimstone because of their vile practices. And we know that, that this was about how the people of the city treated those that God had sent to them. Right? Just as the apostles were being sent to these cities around Galilee. It's similar in a sense that Jesus sent his apostles, and this is referencing the cities that rejected them. So why would these cities that reject Jesus' message end up being judged worse than Sodom and Gomorrah? It's because they are sinning against grace. They are sinning against the knowledge that the Messiah has come. The message of the gospel in a fuller sense. The rejection of King Jesus' message is a sign of a coming judgment that is worse than that, that fell upon Sodom and Gomorrah because it's a rejection of the offer of salvation that was at great cost to Jesus and with full knowledge of what he did to secure it. That's us. I mean, think about it. <clears throat> the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, there was some word out there that God had made a covenant with this man, Abraham, and yet they were still living the way that they did. In this day when Jesus sends out his apostles, the word is going out, the king has come, and they're rejecting it. And, and, and their rejection carries more consequence greater punishment than that of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. How much more, folks, for people of our day, when it's not just that the king came, it's not just that the king walked this earth, but the king died. The full gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection has been revealed to this world. And for a person to reject that, I think it's safe to say is an even greater judgment than what these cities are being told, that described, that is worse than the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what it means to have a responsibility with the truth that we have been told, living on this side of the cross. There is a danger of sinning against grace, sinning 
against knowledge. This haunting concern should define our concern for those who need to know Christ. And the fact that Jesus is our king should define our life. Let's bow our heads. Father God, it is sobering as we think about the way that our nation, founded on biblical truth, founded on biblical principles, as Israel did time after time, in falling away from you, falls very, very far. I think my friends here, like me, aches for our nation that seems to be running headlong away from you. The Lord also give us an ache for our neighbors, for our family members, for those in our community that have the gospel available and yet are rejecting it. Lord God, define our relationship with them by your gospel truth. Allow us, Lord, to receive your definition of what provision we should have. That we wouldn't be waiting until we're just making a little more or we have a little more time to dedicate it to you. But allow us, Lord, to live our life now with reckless abandonment. You have the right to call us to do that. Lord, allow our lives to be for your glory. Because that's, what that's what's great for us. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.